The Map, a podcast about morality and politics, with Michael Bank peterson and Oliver Scott Curry. Uh, well, hello, Michael. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm sitting uh, home in uh, lockdown. Yes, me too. Um, uh, this is the first time we've spoken since Trump's departure. How, how are you feeling about that? Uh, so yes, there's there's a lot of interesting things to uh, to beset. I I think um, what I'm particularly uh, so I I always worry, uh, and the thing that I'm currently worried about is uh, to what extent the United States is heading towards a European situation of the 70s, uh, where we will see sort of uh, undercover terrorist, uh, domestic terrorist cells operating uh, mm-hmm. over uh, over the coming years. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, I base that worry on the, on the storming of uh, the capital. Yeah, I hadn't seen that parallel before, but yeah, you're right. So, what were they? What remind me what they were called? Like the was it the Red Brigade or something in Germany? Well, there was uh, all sorts of different terrorist groups. So there was uh, uh, Rote Armee Fraktion uh, in uh, in Germany. There was uh, uh, Black September. Uh, there was um, there was uh, several different groups. There were terrorist groups uh, in Denmark uh, as well uh, who killed uh, policemen. Um, and, and from the, the way that these terrorist cells emerged, at least, uh, this is both the case for the Danish, uh, and, and for Rodami Fraktion was, uh, after, uh, these sort of public clashes with the police that they sort of realized that that didn't, that didn't lead uh, anywhere. And therefore they went into sort of, uh, full blown, um, terrorist activities instead so so yeah. i could see a parallel with uh with like the storm on the capital leading nowhere uh, and therefore they say well then we need to go undercover this sounds like a very interesting rabbit hole that which we're not going to go down in this episode but um i thought that those groups i don't know much about them at all i thought those groups were just sort of little cells of fanatics i didn't i didn't think that they had as there was a kind of groundswell of support for them well in in the same way that uh i think that there um are uh larger uh so i think i think the situation uh although i'm no expert on europe in the 70s but i i think the situation is pretty parallel uh that that uh in the in the future, uh, sort of worst case scenario for the United States that I'm I'm imagining, then then these people would be the like the extremist base of some broader discontent, which was also the case uh, in Europe in the 70s. Mm. Well, I think we could do a whole episode on that. So we'll let's put that, let's chalk that up uh, for the future. Maybe maybe even get an expert in, you know, break break a habit of a lifetime. Um, well, I was left on with a slightly rosier view. You're, you're a bit of a buzzkill here, Michael, um, in that I'm very much enjoying spending less time paying attention to American politics, at least in the short term, before the coming domestic terror situation that you mentioned. And I'm also feeling quite smug that all of my predictions about Trump have come true, including um, I won about $200 betting correctly that he he would lose. Um, I correctly bet on the electoral college uh, score, whatever that's called, um, and on the and on the popular vote percentage. So altogether, I won about two hundred dollars. And pretty impressive. Thank you. And I also tweeted immediately after he lost that he would he'd never concede. He wouldn't go to the inauguration. And he'd set up a cosplay presidency in his winter White House in Florida. And certainly two out of three of those have happened. And he's also almost done the three with the office of the former president. But we'll see what happens. So, um, so yeah, so far, so good. <laughs> but 
um, from one disaster to another, uh, or as if you know, as if uh, January uh, 2021 wasn't busy enough, it was also the first month that Brexit that, that Britain spent having Brexited, um, as if we didn't have enough on our plate. And that is the our topic uh, of conversation today: um, the wonderful world of Brexit. Um, and I guess the plan is just going to we can just sort of review what happened. Um, uh, I suspect our perspectives might be somewhat different of um, me being in Brexit Britain and you being on um, the, the continent. Um, and then, uh, you know, see what um, juicy morsels we can pick from this, uh, we can scavenge from this carcass afterwards. That sounds uh, like a perfect plan. Um, all right, well, perhaps I could just get started. I, there's, when this all st- when all this got going, like now it's what was it? 20, so the, the referendum was 2016, um, and obviously there'd been uh, a bit of a run up a run up to that too. Um, I kind of had two overriding impulses. One was that I was very bored of people arguing about Europe, even be- I mean from long before 2015. I mean people have been arguing about Europe, Europe in out, Euroscepticism. Um, my entire life. In fact, I, th- I think I can't remember the exact date Britain went into Europe, but I think it was about the time I was born. Um, and people, and it's been people have been arguing about it ever since. And it's on a par with the kind of not as serious, but um, the Israeli-Palestine situation that people just have just argued about it nonstop, backwards and forwards for decades without any resolution one one way or the other. So when I quite looked forward to the prospect of sort of things coming to a head and being decided one way or another, um, just so people would stop, you know, stop arguing about it. Um, and the other thing I felt about it was I felt generally, I, I, I felt generally indifferent about the outcome. Um, I had no particular axe to grind. I had no particular expertise on the pros and cons of um of the European Union and uh, so I've so I kind of sort of like the like it turns out the country I felt kind of 50-50 about it could could go either way I didn't really mind which way it went um, I was fairly evenly evenly divided um, and the interesting thing was so so was the uh, from my perspective, so was the, as it were, the establishment to some extent. So people like to say that, especially Americans, like to say that what happened with Brexit is the same as what happened with Trump. It was a kind of populist uh, revolt and um, led by deplorables or the the British equivalent of deplorables, oiks, I suppose. Um, And that that never struck me as particularly true because in Trump's case... It really it was let's say mostly deplorables and Trump and the the establishment was almost uniformly opposed to him. Even the even the sort of leading Republicans now who like let's say Lindsey Graham um, or Rubio or whatever even sort of the the Republican establishment now that for some reason continued to express loyalty to him they were all adamantly opposed to him when he first uh, when he was running. To be president, so he really was like a, a an outsider against the establishment, and he managed to break through. Um, and that really wasn't the case in Britain with this referendum vote, N- not least because the popular opinion about Europe had always had always hovered around the fifty percent for and against mark for decades. So it obviously, it had it, it it was kind of a mainstream view for a long time. Um, and also there are many, you know, it was led, the Leave movement was led by, uh, you know, like them or not, was read, was led by fairly establishment politicians. It was led by a proportion of the cabinet. Um, and it was very baffling from my point of view, not being strongly committed, not knowing that much about it, to see people that you expected to be experts or to know more about it have completely diametrically opposed views so obviously, obviously, you had some members of the cabinet and the prime minister saying this would be very bad. You had other members of the cabinet saying no, this would be very good. 
you had, I remember in particular, there's one week where the, the current head of MI5, our inter, one of our intelligence services, was saying, oh, this would be terrible. We would lose all these, uh, we, it would be terrible for security. We'd lose all these um, European, access to all these European schemes. And then almost sort of two days later, a former head of MI5 wrote an editorial saying, no, this would be fantastic. We'd finally be free of the inefficient um, European systems and we, we, we'd have more latitude to develop the program that we have with New Zealand and Australia and whatever. And that happened again and again. So like the the head of the Bank of England, uh, I think Mark Carney, was very adamantly opposed to Brexit and wrote, uh, you know, expressed that very forthrightly this would be an economic disaster and then you had the former head of the bank of england mervyn king saying exactly the opposite no this would be great and we could do this that, and the other so it was very as a let's say as an outsider's point of view it was it was very interesting to see such completely opposite views um being expressed now i, th- I think it, it was the case that that leave was a minority among the establishment but it wasn't it wasn't a sort of it, it was a minority establishment position um and it was interesting to see uh, these people, you know, p- people who I assume knew, definitely knew better than me, having completely the opposite point of view. So, would would you think that this is a a reflection of of the the basic fact that there is so much uncertainty uh, in nature, so much uncertainty about what is actually uh, happening that it's extremely difficult uh, to make any any sort of uh, real uh, develop any real scenarios about uh, the likely development and as a consequence of that one uh, have the tendency to pick uh, whatever scenario fits one priors uh, or one's basic uh, attitude about uh, whether one is in favor of of uh, one or the other uh, path yeah I, um we didn't have anything to compare it to so it's not like we had a um a, an alternative possible world no, or alternative dimension where the uk hadn't gone into europe in the 70s and we could say oh look we're, this is doing better this is doing worse it's all it's kind of all speculation and obviously anyone can point to here's a thing that looks like it went badly and other people can say here's a thing that looks like it went well but from an experimental point of view who you know who knows there's so many so many there's only you know you can't rewind the tape and do it again so yeah it's very um it's very uncertain um and well and in a, in a sense that's one of the what this one feature that I thought was attractive about the leave option is that I was almost attracted to it out of curiosity that oh here people have been arguing the toss about this for decades here's an, here's a chance to have an experiment let's put it to the test um, uh, let's um, let's see what happens and my my expectation then as it is now my null hypothesis is that nothing would happen that there would be some winners and there'd be some losers um, there'd be there'd be some initial kind of transaction costs and friction of changing the system which i think has turned out to be bigger than i expected but um yeah there'd be winners and losers and it would be very hard to tell the difference one one way or the other um something that has now been very much complicated by covid so whereas i had thought oh, okay at last we'll have a now we're leaving let's have a this is a kind of experiment we can see what happens now that now the pandemic's come in and just trashed everything so i don't think well we still won't know and there'll still be another generation of people arguing oh we should have done this we should have done that covid um, is a big uh, confounder yes of yeah of just completely smashed you know you've set up all your experimental instruments carefully uh, and you're all ready to go and then the roof falls in and we're back to square one um but yeah so i so that was the situation running up to the referendum and there, watching it all, there were a few moments that I thought, which weren't that commented upon, but I just thought really um, reflected badly on the Remain, uh, on the Remain side. Just some of their arguments um, that they made side. So one was the the Labour Party was notionally 
in favour of remaining. But most of their leadership, especially Jeremy Corbyn, was in favour of, did I say remaining? So officially they were remain, but many of their hearts were leave and always had been. There's always been a strong um, leave contingent in the Labour Party from... I mean, from the seventies onwards, from and lots of big figures in the Labour Party like, like Tony Benn um, have always have always been um, anti-Europe, thinking it was a big sort of basically thinking it was a big free market capitalist club, and they didn't want to be um, didn't want to be part of it. Um, but they made I thought they made a terrible argument that they said we should stay we should stay in the EU because the EU. Um, because we have all these, uh, let's say, employment rights protections, all these these um, labour labour protections, um, that we'd lose if we left the EU. And I thought this was a terrible argument because what they were essentially saying was, we can't convince people to vote for these things in the, in the UK, but nevertheless we've we it has they have been voted for in Europe and Europe are are enforcing these particular rules, and if. I thought that was a dread. It was a, it, the the merits of the laws to one side to say that we couldn't win an election on this basis here, but nevertheless we've got what we want by having this external body um, enforce the laws was a was a complete. complete it was, it was the foot. sort of uh, giving giving into the to the basic argument for why uh, why. Uh, Brexit needed to happen was exactly because all sorts of laws were were imposed uh, yeah in, i mean again independently of the merits i remember so john john maynard smith um the, the amazing uh evolutionary biologist and game theorist and everything else um he had a really interesting someone asked him what he thought of sociobiology and he said i always find i disagree with the person i've spoken to most recently about it <laughs> So whenever he met an advocate of sociobiology or applying evolutionary stuff to humans, he he came away sceptical. And then when he talked to a, you know, a blank slater saying, oh, biology's got nothing to do with it, he was then back, he'd swing back the other way. So again, I kind of went into not knowing the answer to this question. I would try and pay attention to sensible people saying things. And that was an example of one where he was, they were making an argument for staying in, which I thought was re- repulsive in the sense that it, rep- it repelled me. Um so was the the so it it seems to me from the from the outside um, that you come came into the Brexit uh, conversation or discussion uh, hoping that there would be a, a sort of answer on the basis of uh, of realistic scenarios, but but what quickly happened was that the whole discussion uh, became extremely polarized mm. very quickly and and therefore removed the potential to have a more rationalistic uh, discussion about well what what makes sense from a larger perspective what are the costs and and uh, benefits so it almost seem as if uh, the so there's um, in in the work by Philip Tetlock on uh, on political cognition he has this concept of uh, taboo trade-offs that that because the Brexit uh, discussion was moralized then then yeah. it was no longer possible to make these trade-offs about well what are the costs and benefits either you were sacrificing something uh moral by saying you should remain or you were sacrificing something moral by saying that you should should leave so you couldn't have this more nuanced discussion uh, yeah i think that's that's totally what happened that it i mean it it's i mean like i said it's a it's a vast complicated difficult and in many cases boring question you know is this set of regulations better than that set of regulations and Nobody, and nobody knew the answer, really. Um, and if they did, no one would have listened to them. <laughs> it, was, you know, it was too dry. So, so given that, yes, it, it did become very polarised, you know, in unconvincing ways on both sides. So with the, um, to the extent the Remainers said, 
oh, you know, if we do this, it's going to be a catastrophe. See, that's, I mean, anything's possible, but that's it. that was kind of one extreme. Um, and on the other side, oh, if we do this, we will be, uh, you know, liberated and we'll be Singapore on, on the channel and the world's our oyster and amazing things will happen. Um, neither side, obviously, you know, the, the, both sides sort of exaggerated um, because the, the truth was murky and, and um, boring. And I th- and one of another distasteful aspect of this I found was that the the moralizing in many cases was I, I thought was sort of transparently hypocritical um, probably probably not transparent to the people who are doing it but so I mean the standard narrative and I hate saying narrative but theory or whatever thing the standard thing people say is that um, all the good nice liberals voted to, to remain and all the nasty xenophobic racists voted to uh, leave or or rather the only reason why anyone would vote to leave is because they were a nasty racist um, bigot um, which which was an example of the the polarization that it was um, sort of demonizing people who, who disagreed um, with you and, and goes to the other extreme um, but it seemed to me that I, what I basically think happened and I've looked up a statistic, so I think it must be right. Um, is that when the, the, one of the standard things people would argue for in favour of being in the European uh, in European Union and the free market and everything was that it was a free market, and in particular, it was a free market. It was a f- um, there were it was a free labour market, so labour could move around the whole all the twenty seven or whatever countries. Um, and people rightly said that, generally speaking, free markets are generate prosperity and are good and are, are you know generally good for everyone involved but it's not the case that everyone benefits equally and what happened in the UK was essentially that low skilled low income workers in the UK were outcompeted by cheaper labor coming in from Europe and in particular Eastern Europe um, so they they were losing their livelihoods um, so to like to take a stereotypical example, your average, your average English builder in uh, in in Britain um, was being outcompeted by cheaper uh, cons- uh, builders coming from Eastern Europe. But what was happening was, the, you know, middle class people were getting cheaper kitchens because suddenly the everything was everything was cheaper. So they thought they thought it was great and lower skilled working class people were losing their jobs so they thought it was bad and not surprisingly uh, unfortunately many of that resent much of some of the resentment um towards uh, the immigrant labor took was obviously nasty and took a nasty um uh, what was could be racist but it wasn't it what they didn't someone didn't wake up and just randomly say oh, i'm suddenly gonna i'm suddenly racist they were racist they 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 resented this group of people coming in and um, damaging their income, um, and the and the figures bear this out. So, in in the last decade or so, uh, according to the Office of National Statistics, low income workers their their income declined, and middle and uh, higher income uh, workers their income their income increased. So, what happened was you have middle class people getting cheaper kitchens, going thinking this is great. Working class people losing their jobs, thinking this is not great. And when they complain about it, being called racist by the middle class people with nice kitchens, which, again, is a terrible, um, a terrible dynamic. Now, obviously, you can you can debate the pros and cons of a, of a free labor market and you can recognize that some people are going to win, some people are going to lose. And you can, you know, you can weigh the pros and cons or do something about it. But if your only reaction is, well, the only reason anyone could object to my free kitchen is because they're racist is a, is a particularly, you know, uh, it's not a very penetrating analysis of, of what was going on. No, and uh, I agree. I agree with that. And um, so I think uh, one of uh, of the of the contributions of um, of an evolutionary uh, psychological perspective on moral disagreements is that there is often self-interest uh, underneath so when whenever you see strong 
moral outrage, then often that is an attempt uh, to use morality to mobilize others for a cause that ultimately fits your interests. Uh, so, so that's that's sort of a the a, a, a cynical uh, perspective of of morality, but but uh, something that that there's some evidence of at least empirically. And and is that something that, I mean, is that is it the nature of those kind of moral arguments that it it just switches off your ironically switches off your ability to empathise with your opponents? Do you know what I mean? So so sure you you could have a cause that you believe in very strongly and you could you could moralize it you know promote it all the rest of it but is there something that in order to do that you can't even entertain it but it becomes increasingly difficult to entertain the idea that your opponents might have a might have a similar uh, yeah so i i, I think if um if the overarching goal with what you are involved in is mobilization for your cause then that should automatically switch off your interest and ability to process what the other uh, people and other group is is saying because that can that can only uh, create problems from a coordination perspective if suddenly you now need to spend time and energy on discussing whether it has uh, has any sense to it so so basically you just need to focus on portraying the other group as as the enemy uh, who are selfish and who are uh, trying to uh, do things that um, that will create problems for you and uh, people like you because that is really what you need to mobilize uh, around yeah i i mean i think well, either i'm very self-deceiving or um or unusual but there's lots of things that i think are very um very right very morally good and i'm very much in favor of them but i can use if there's a i can well there's usually an opposing view and i usually am very keen i'm drawn to find out what it is if only to kind of test my own view so i can think i'm very right about something and at the same time recognize that there might be i might be wrong i might be incorrect and i want to find out and it's not and it's usually things aren't usually black and white and so you can at least learn something from the from the other side even if you end up still disagreeing with them or even understanding even better why they're wrong um but this that is doesn't happen as often as we'd like perhaps yeah no i i, I think uh there are uh, fundamental differences uh, between people in the in the way that they react to uh, people who they disagree with uh, and how they react to individuals with um, with with other ideas than than their own and I think that that uh, whether you are sort of listening uh, openly or not I think that makes a huge difference Right. Well, and so, I mean, bringing it back to this case, I've, I always thought and continue to think there's good arguments for, for both sides. There's good, there were good arguments for remaining. Um, it was, it was probably the safer bet. It was the status quo, it had lots of benefits. Um, and there were, there were also good arguments for, um, for leaving. It would be, uh, there were, so there were costs, um, there were things that potentially could be done better. Um, it would be interesting. Uh, and so I always thought there were good, um, and I, re I remain kind of open-minded. I'm interested in both sides and always um, interested in the opposing view. And I, I was kind of surprised how, well, just to fast forward through the history, I was kind of surprised how when f for the years after um, the, uh, so after we had the results and we were leave one by a very, by a narrow margin and we were on course to leave, um, I was amazed at sort of how demonized um, I mean, in a sense, the Leave voters then didn't need to demonise the Remain voters. They um, they'd already kind of they'd won the ballot, so they didn't need to. And maybe things would have been different the other way around. Um, but I was surprised how the um, a, a vocal proportion of the Remainers can just proceeded to sort of demonise Leave voters um, rather than accept the 
the you know the results of the process and we won't there's no point going into all the details but because i've been asked before the gist of what happened next over the next uh f- few months and years after the result um was that the political establishment agreed accepted the result uh notionally to leave um but basically the job of leaving was given to a bunch of remainers um both in government uh, in uh, and in parliament so you then had uh, this very weird situation where it was le- it was left to remainers to leave and obviously their their hearts weren't in it and they were sort of defeated by the simplest um obstacles and um one way one, <laughs> one slightly cynical way it is similar to trump um is that just like uh the 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 next let's say 3 years just consisted of remainers in parliament coming up with every possible um trick or well, not trick every every possible um parliamentary maneuver they could possibly think of to to delay or obfuscate or turn over this result and it was just kind of a a steeplechase of one obscure uh, um, bit of um, what's it called parliamentary procedure one one obscure bit of procedure after another being pulled out of the woodwork and um, the 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 Theresa May's government was a minority government so they couldn't just kind of they couldn't just plow on so it was just an extremely slow, painful, difficult uphill process um, until uh, Boris Johnson was elected with a bigger majority and he kind of bulldozed his way through and here we are. And here we are in, in the middle of a pandemic, so now we'll never know. <laughs> no, but I think uh, I think uh, what... Um, it, it seems to me from the outside that there's still some... Uh, some healing to be done in, or that needs to be done in in um, in uh, in the UK, and that uh, what what we are also learning from this process, and what I think we can also learn from polarization in the United States, is that that uh, one of the insights from one of of our heroes, namely Karl Popper is right that you actually need when engaging in a political discussion you, you need to assume that other people have good reasons for the arguments that they are making yeah I've, so um yeah we, we should let's um make a note let's do a let's do a, a podcast on on popper too um yeah I, well, I this goes back to the the polarization thing so i well the the, the um zero-sum and non-zero-sum thinking. So if you think of a disagreement as a non-zero-sum interaction where, as Popper said, you know, I, I might be right or I might be wrong or you might be right, you might be wrong, but but by working together we can both get close to the truth. If you think of it as a, as a potentially cooperative in, encounter that you can both win, you can both remove some of your error and move close to the truth, then th- that's obviously a constructive and productive way to have an argument about about things whereas if you think of it as a zero sum competition any uh you know any concession i make uh you know any anything i acknowledge anything that you say that i acknowledge is correct is a loss to me obviously the incentives are all skew whiff and we're never we're never going to get anywhere we're never going to admit a defeat we're never going to um uh, acknowledge good points other people make and you know there'll always be a winner and a loser as opposed to two um two winners Two winners so, like us, Michael. So, what? So, given we have been talking about cynical ways of of thinking about things, so so here's another cynical uh, way to think about uh, Brexit, and that is that in some way, it was a zero sum competition for some of those who were involved, namely uh, the political elites, that they were engaged in a zero sum competition for power within uh, within the Great Britain and 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 that was essentially what created or helped facilitate the last degree of polarization 
Yeah, I think that's right. And um, we, I'm looking forward to us coming back to that with um, talking about how morality and politics um, interact in the abstract. But yeah, one of the, so one of the things um, is often said about Boris Johnson is that he was sort of purely opportunistic and he, he wasn't, I don't know this, if this is true or not, but it's often said that he wasn't a particularly, he wasn't that bothered about remaining or leaving. Um, he just saw an opportunity to sort of outflank the the extant leadership of the Conservative Party and the and the government um, to, to to do something different from them, um, and so and here was his opportunity. He 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 sort of took a gamble on the uh, on the Leave side, which was always expected to lose, um, and he won, perhaps to his surprise, and so now he's won big and he's he's the Prime Minister. So p- people often. Um, frame that very pejoratively and um, so yeah let's agree that being an opportunistic uh, an opportunist is not is not particularly good but on the other hand I think well what are politicians for if not to seek opportunities to I mean they are competing with each other surely we want politicians who compete with one another to provide the majority of people with what they want and if he sees you know, if he's not that bothered one or the other, but he saw an opportunity to provide a lot of people with, ev- or the majority of people with evidently what they wanted, that's exactly what we should want in a politician, not someone who's, um, you know, so committed to what they want that they don't, you know, realise these um, uh, unpotentiated opportunities. I think that. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't let him. I wouldn't let him. Uh, you know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't buy a used car off him, maybe. But did did he do what is reasonable for politicians to do? Yes, I think so. No, I I think that's that's true. Like in a representative democracy, then uh, politicians uh, should indeed uh, re- represent uh, the publics. Um, I think. I think at the same time, what you Wow. It's like, I'm just, it just occurred to me, it's like saying, oh, Jeff Bezos isn't really interested in books. He just, he's just interested in money, but he saw, you know, a market opportunity to send millions of people millions of books. And oh, isn't that terrible? It's like, well, no, he's a businessman. He wants to make money. He found a way of generating value for people that made a lot of money. Or, you know, if you don't like Jeff Bezos, pick any, um, you know, we don't, I don't care if Jeff Bezos likes books or not. That's not the point. No, that's true. But at, at the same time, I think I think that there's a difference between finding a position in ideological space or policy space that uh, creates better representation of people's views. I think that that is what we want in a politician. I think at the same time, there is some truth uh, to to an old uh, saying that that comes from the research of uh, of uh, John Hipping and John Alford, that that basically people have preferences for politicians that don't want to be politicians, because you want right. people who are not seeking uh, office just for the power of it, but but to represent. Your view. Yes, yes, but if they. But that's what I mean. If you square the circle by having people who compete for power by satisfying voters' preferences, what I mean, what more do you want? No, no, that's true. That's the that is uh, how competitive uh, electoral democracy works in the end. Yeah, I mean, it's it's better that they do that than compete by, you know, who can I don't know who can stuff the most ballots or uh, who can get the most who can. Um, kill the most of the next door's tribe or who can who's got you know who's the toughest it's much better that they compete in this way but but i think i i still think while while we agree on all that then i think the brexit discussions show where there are some weaknesses and i think i think this is going back to to uh, some critiques uh, of this notion uh, coming from joseph uh, schumpeter uh, about how, how for that model to really work well, then you need an enlightened public who are able 
to figure out what is right and what is, is wrong. So basically the information asymmetry between the elites and, and the public creates, uh, well, basically creates the condition where, where you can have this polarization process push people into different realities, so to speak. And I think that's the, that's the, that's the danger. So, but did, did Schumper, do, do people need to know what's right and what's wrong? Or do they just need to know what they want? Right? Because I thought they just, they just need to know, assuming they're not wanting totally immoral things. If they just have, if they have a, um, an on average, a clear view of their interests, they know what they want. Um, then that's all you, all you need. And then they'll vote for people who they think will, will give them what they want. And obviously the politicians can um, f- fail to do that. Uh, isn't that, that's, that, that's enough. And, that, and then the irony was in this case that the, the uh, significant proportion of the elites were saying that people were wrong. They were wrong and mistaken. Um, they, they didn't realise that voting to leave would bring about would bring about all these catastrophic outcomes which in fact haven't turned out no but i'm i'm, I'm still going back to the to the um, to to the sort of situation where you started saying well there are some scenarios that predict one thing and there are other scenarios that predict the totally opposite uh, thing will happen after after brexit and i think in the so the the optimal scenario would be uh, where we can where we have a shared sense of of reality, uh, but and then just can disagree about uh, about what we want, uh, not what is, but what ought to be, so to speak. Right, and I th- and I think in this case, it nobody knew, it wasn't clear what is uh, or what would be, and. I think people were rightly skeptical of kind of extreme uh, predictions on either side. And, you know, and it was a narrow, ultimately it was a narrow uh, victory for, for leave. And I must just tell you one other anecdote, Michael. Um, you know, I said that I didn't, I didn't know which side was which, blah, blah, blah. So Richard Dawkins had a, an editorial uh, in the run-up to the election, where I think the title was literally uh, something like, I'm an ignoramus about Europe. Why would they let me vote? It was something like that. And his and the gist of it was, uh, Europe is very complicated. Most people don't know the, the pros and cons. I, he was saying, I don't know the pros and cons, and yet we're all allowed to vote on it, including him. This seems like a very silly way to decide um, how to do things. So I thought, yeah, fair enough. And then, then what happened immediately after the vote? He then became a, uh, an ardent Remainer, saying that all the Leavers were massively stupid for doing it. I thought, well, hang on, you can't have it both ways. Either you know the pros and cons or you don't. You can't be ignorant of it and then condemn people that disagree with you. you if you're ignorant, you're ignorant. You have to keep an, op- you know, you have to keep an open mind. Um, that's very odd. It, it just, this whole thing just seemed to drive a lot of people mad. They, they they couldn't cope with people being being disagreed with and you know and obviously they were worried about what would happen and everything else but um which is understandable but they just lost lots of people just kind of lost their minds end up being crazy ideological about it um but anyway we will we'll find out i like i say it's it is life is an experiment this is an experiment given the decision we should here we are. We should give it a try for a generation and review in, you know, we pre-registered our various predictions. Let's give it a try for, well, I don't know, 10, 20, give it for a generation and then review. And if it's working, great, carry on. If it's not working, change, you know, course correct. It's not... Anyway. Um, yeah, and in terms of the, the, the morality of it all... Um, I, the, the, the Leave side always said, and I think that they're right, that they, their overriding motivation was sovereignty, was um, the ability to, to, 
for Britain to make its own decisions, make its own um, laws, um, and to hold the, those lawmakers more accountable. There was one particularly telling moment in some of the debates, in what, some um, fancy debate in the in the referendum, where uh, some there were a bunch of high-profile Remainers saying Europe is great, we should stay in, and there were a bunch of um, Leavers saying Europe is terrible. Um, and one of the reasons they gave was it's unaccountable. We don't. Nobody knows um, who's running the show. And the Remainers said, oh, don't be so silly. And one of the Leavers said, okay, can you tell me, can you give me the name of three commissioners or what, what, something like that? And, it, and none of the Remainers could name any of the people at the top of the tree. And I thought that was a hugely embarrassing moment for the Remain campaign because they're saying... No, you know, the European Union is very accountable, it's very responsive, and they don't even know they don't even know who's doing it. They've got no one to blame when it goes wrong. Um, but anyway, so the Leave side had always said that their motivate primary motivation was um uh sovereignty. Whether that was the main motivation of all their supporters, I don't think that was that was the case, but that was the uh the top of the the top of the bill. Um and I've I'm sometimes asked where where does um freedom and liberty and autonomy fit into morality what kind of sort of cooperative what kind of cooperation um is that and as you know moral foundations has a has recently bolted on a liberty foundation to try and uh, accommodate that and i kind of i don't know the answer but i kind of think that autonomy is freedom from other people's cooperative schemes um so you know there's in everyday life you have lots of opportunities to cooperate with different people in different projects uh, you you take the ones that are most beneficial to you um, but if you find yourself working on a project working in a team that is no longer in your interests or, or other opportunities present themselves um, and yet for some reason you're locked in or you're coerced into staying into in a scheme that you no longer um, which you no longer think is the best fit for you then that I think that's where that that independence impulse comes from the the autonomy. It's I want autonomy is literally self rule, right? I want to I want to extricate myself from this relationship and you know see other people as it were. Um, and I think rightly or wrongly that was the the prime. And so is that is that a moral impulse to extract yourself from cooperation i think if you're extracting yourself from a suboptimal uh equilibrium in order to look for superior equilibrium then it kind of fits in the in the scheme somewhere i think it's uh i think it's a good and interesting point uh and often when we think about autonomy uh well at least I, when I think about autonomy, often then it is uh, in 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 like the the negative freedom sense where you are protected from exploitation. Uh, but so it, it's not just uh, autonomy; it's not just sort of being protected from the cost imposition of others, but also that you can say say no to cooperative projects. And, and of course, uh, that will uh, trigger uh, negative sentiments in, uh, in the other uh, party uh, here, the European Union, exactly because it is uh, viewed as a plus sum game and, and the corporative surplus becomes less. So, so the withdrawal is, is in fact a, a, a cost imposition, uh, one would, would say. Yeah, we is that uh, so? A, I think Andy Delton and some others, possibly you, have a paper on that. That even sort of ref, refusing to join in is moralized because you're um, you're you're preventing you're you're not contributing to some potential mutual benefit. And that goes back to what we were saying before about not being able to understand understand where the other side's coming from. Because if you've got if you're involved in a cooperative scheme, that's um, that feels very right and morally good to you and someone exits your scheme I mean not only are you incurring a cost when they do that but 
given the sort of moral framing of your, the cooperative scheme, you're, that person is immoral. I mean, the, why, why would they possibly not be joining in with you doing your thing? The, the, by definition, almost, the only reason is because they're immoral. And then, and then you're off. Then you're, that's, you know, that's the situation the debate was in. Exactly. But, but we will, we will uh, not uh, fall into those kinds of psychological dynamics. So we will keep up the MAP podcast despite Brexit. Yes, despite Brexit. So thanks very much for listening, everyone. Uh, subscribe, like, do whatever it is you're supposed to do with these things. Tell your friends, tell your partners, tell the world. And we'll see you on the next episode of The Map. Mm-hmm.